man. In 2 Corinthians, it says it this way, we trust in God who delivered us from so great a death, who does deliver us and whom we trust that he will still deliver us. Our God is a God who delivers. Our God is a God who works in a way that brings in deliverance. And as Paul looks at this, he's able to say, he has, he is, he will. He has delivered us. He does deliver us. We expect him to keep delivering us. Paul writes about that through some of the circumstances that he found himself in. And it's certainly one of those spaces that we're going to find ourselves in here in Acts uh, chapter 22 and 23 as we walk through spaces where Paul's going to be delivered. And I find myself thinking about that and in the back of my mind, I think about one of those illustrations that's so commonly used that most of you would recognize it right off. One that's been shared uh, over and over, I'm sure, in many a sermon and many a space, but it kind of works uh, to think it through. Probably not uh, you know, anything having anything to do with reality, but just kind of an apocryphal story of a man that found himself living in a valley, in a flood zone. And you know, he's there one day, and, and, the, and the, the alert goes off on his, his radio, his television, letting him know that that the rains are coming, the floods are rising, that everybody in the valley needs to you know, exit the valley. He hears that and says, you know, I trust God. I trust God to take care of me. It's going to be great. Uh, the rains start coming and things start washing. His neighbors come and pound on his door and say, hey, we're leaving. We're getting out. You should come with us. He's like, no, I'm good. I trust God. This is great. I, he's going to take care of me. And so he just continues and pretty soon the rain rises higher, begins splashing on the edges. You know, emergency vehicles begin coming through the streets, blaring their bullhorns. Everybody needs to evacuate. Every Everybody needs to leave. And he's like, you know what? I trust God. This is great. You know, he's going to take care of me. I'm really, really good. And so the water continues rising till it's like a foot deep running. He's up on his, you know, living room couch and, you know, boat comes through and knocks on his door and like, anybody in there, we can get you. It's like, oh, I'm good. You know, trust in God. This is great. He's going to be good. And so finally the river continues to rise. He's up on his roof, you know, of the house and the thing. Helicopter comes down, drops down the ladder to get him go. He's like, no, I'm really great. No, I'm trusting God. This is good. And uh, then the river rises and he dies. So he gets up there before heaven. Again, this is apocryphal. It didn't really happen. You guys got it. But he gets up there by heaven and he's mad. He's like, God, I trusted you. Like, how could you let me die? And he's like, I sent you an alert siren. I sent your neighbors to the door. I, I sent the, the police through the whole thing. I sent a boat and a helicopter. You ignored every way that I possibly sent to rescue you. I tell you this story in one sense because God does work. And sometimes the way that he works is almost natural. I mean, God can do the supernatural. God can, you know, fail the walls of a Jericho. He can send an angel uh, to deliver Peter out of prison, and he does. We should believe that our God is a miraculous working God. But sometimes the deliverance he brings, it doesn't look that way. Sometimes he uses very natural things, and that is certainly part of what's going to happen for the Apostle Paul. We're going to see him rescued, delivered, no less than half a dozen times uh, within this section. But I want you to watch how it happens. I want you to watch how it happens and let it kind of meet you wherever God would have you be met in that. And so for that, we'll back up just a little bit, back up into uh, chapter uh, 21 there as we, as we look into the whole space where, where Paul is there. Uh, he's there in the city of Jerusalem. He's, brought, he's come to bring the gospel. He's come to bring in hope in this space. And so it tells us there in verse 30 that the whole city uh, was disturbed. And the people ran together. They seized Paul. They dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. 
So Paul's in the city of Jerusalem. He's there. He's, he's just being faithful in the midst of it. But man, it goes crazy. Uh, the people are, are, you know, hear that Paul's there. They're running together. They grab hold of him. They drag him to the temple. And it says they were seeking to kill him in verse 31. Like he's really probably just inches away, if you want to think about it this way, from, from dying, uh, from, from being killed in this moment. But news came to the commander of the garrison, in verse 31, that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. He took soldiers and centurions, ran down to them. And when he saw the commander and the, sol- and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains, and he asked him what he had done. Hey, amazing moment. I mean, Paul's literally inches from da- death, and he is rescued. He is rescued by Roman soldiers. He's rescued by those who are placed there by Rome to keep the peace. Uh, that's why they're there. Uh, they're there in, in the Antonia Fortress right there. They're there to deal with problems many times within the Jews, and they hear it. And they hear this whole thing go off. They hear this uproar, and they respond. Soldiers come rushing out. They see Paul. You know, he is being beaten, and they rescue him. This is one of the ways that God rescues Paul. It's one of the ways that Paul gets saved from being killed. And it happened, if we could use maybe the modern vernacular, through those who are enforcing the law. Uh, Law enforcement people there in that moment, and it's worth just pausing and saying that. Now, I'm going to make a guess, and it may be an inaccurate guess, but I'm going to make a guess for us here in this room. We understand that, at least in part, what value and honor and respect, you know, really is meant to be given to those who, who are peacekeepers, who are doing that, that space. What a tough road that is. The Bible tells us we are to give respect to them. Now, we live in a world and a culture that's flipping on this. We live in a culture uh, that has made, you know, law enforcement uh, almost something that is to be disregarded and dishonored, and I would hope in this space that is not you. If it is, I just want to very lovingly say you're probably more affected by culture than you are by reality, Uh, more affected by where our culture sees things, because the Bible's clear where to respect that, and all you have to do is look at any culture that has no law enforcement, has nothing there, and all you find is anarchy, and it is bad news. Uh, Sin is a very destructive thing, and so in our world, we we should look on that with respect and honor. I hope you do. And the truth is, for us, sometimes, God, even through something like that, even through those who would, you know, patrol our streets and and watch over us, he brings in rescue, ways that he watches over our lives and, and protects us from destruction and us from death by very naturally working this, and that's exactly what God has done for Paul here. He has protected his life through the soldiers that are there. But the saga continues. Paul gets arrested by these, yes, they take care of him. Yes, they preserve him, but they have him there. If you were with us last week, Paul asks for favor. The, the commander gives it to him, and Paul preaches the gospel. He tells the city there. He tells all those who are gathered there his story, his testimony. Flip over to chapter 22, and we pick it up uh, where we kind of left off. Um, and we'll just start there in verse 21. He's finishing his testimony And he says, you know, Jesus is saying to him, depart, because I'm going to send you far from here. I'm going to send you to to the Gentiles to take the gospel to them. And they listened to Paul, to him, until this word, Gentiles. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not 
fit to live. Then they cried out and tore their clothes and threw dust into the air. The commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging, that they might know why, why, why they shouted so against him. And they bound him with thongs in, in this space. Hey, pause there and make sure you're just kind of seeing it. So it doesn't go well. I mean, Paul's, you know, he preaches this. The crowd explodes. The commander takes him and he's like, I don't understand what's happening. He can't seem to get a good answer. So he puts him into a space to be beaten, uh, into a place where under, under Roman interrogation that all by itself can be deadly. It, it's not one that's in any way restrained uh, as sometimes Jewish uh, laws were in those days. If you're familiar with some of those, Romans had the freedom to exact whatever they felt like they needed to do to get the truth. And for whatever reason, the commander's like, you know what? I don't trust you. <laughs> I don't trust you. Beat him. Like, just you get the truth out of him. Figure out what this is. I, you, know, you woke me up from my nap. I don't know whatever. He, he's a little bit irritated at this moment. And so once more, we find Paul there. I mean, he is just about uh, you know, ready to undergo this. And it's probably not a good space for him. We know uh, from the previous account that he just got beaten by the mob. In fact, it said he was so badly beaten that they had to carry him. So he's already not doing well. I mean, physically, this is not a good moment. I mean, this next moment could be his end. Uh, this could be the, the th thing that, you know, kind of takes him over the edge, and he's there. They got him in the interrogation room. They begin to bind him, you know, getting ready to, to, to do this and, and, and take this action against him. It tells us that they bound him with thongs, and then Paul just speaks up. Verse 25, he said to the centurion who stood by, is it lawful for you to scourge a man who is a Roman and uncondemned? When the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, take care what you do. This man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman? He said, yes. The commander answered, with a large sum, I obtained this citizenship. Paul said, but I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman because he had bound him. Lots of great stuff in the midst of it, probably more historical knowledge than we were going to take time to go into. And a couple of you would enjoy it, but most of you would be overwhelmed by it. Rome's a different space at this point in time. Rome is uh, ruling, it's a Roman empire, but to be a Roman citizen was incredibly rare. It took being born there in Rome and being born in the right families and spaces in Rome. There were other spaces where you could be uh, made a Roman citizen, but it was rare. I mean, soldiers, yes. Uh, then it had to be, you know, again, born into families, have, have citizens of power, very few people within the Roman Empire, Roman citizens. If you were a Roman citizen, you had incredible privilege. Uh, Rome kind of saw it as you touch a citizen of Rome, you touch Rome. You mess with one of ours, you've messed with the whole. Uh, it was such an incredible space of honor and protection that kind of put somebody into that space. And, and, and again, to obtain that would be a radical thing. The centurion come and he's like, so how are you a Roman? He said, like, I bought my citizenship with a lot of money, which, by the way, was illegal. I mean, but he did it. I mean, somehow he bribed his way into the whole thing. Uh, and, and it's not, you weren't supposed to be able to do that. He obviously did. And Paul's like, I was born so. I was born a Roman citizen. Now, that raises questions. Like, how, I mean, how was Paul, as a Jew in the city of Tarsus, uh, a Roman citizen? And we have no idea. He was born that way, so it was something his parents did. 
It's something his parents must have done uh, for a Roman general. It must have done for you know, somebody in charge that must have obtained such favor that they basically commended upon his family uh, Roman citizenship. So Paul's born into it. It is his privilege. It is his rights. And that's what rescues him at this moment. Maybe that's what we want to think about for a moment because Paul's rescued from this beating that could have taken his life by his legal rights that he leans into. That he leans into and says, are you guys sure you want to do that? I'm a Roman. You know, are you sure you want to beat me, uh, you know, without, without this? And once they find out they're all, he's a Roman, they're like, no. <laughs> like we, they're actually afraid because they've bound him. Because even to bind a Roman uh, citizen was, was considered, you know, a punishable offense. But God's rescuing him. Maybe, again, it's just simple enough to think it through. But for some of us, we need to think it through because... You know, some could actually look at this and think, well, isn't this a lack of faith? I mean, shouldn't Paul be trusting God, you know, to rescue him? Why is he appealing to his citizenship? But it is how God's rescuing him. It is the way that God is taking care of him at this moment. And that's a good space that God actually in his providential way does this. Again, I don't know if I'm speaking to anybody here very specifically, but sometimes we could actually wrestle with it. Like, is it a lack of faith for me to... I don't know, be on Medicare? Is it a lack of faith for me to have food stamps? Is it, I mean, should I be trusting God, you know, into this space instead of trusting into something that is my right as an American citizen? And I just want to tell you, I mean, God works through that. We can lay down our rights freely. Hey, there's a good space. And even the Bible would tell us, hey, sometimes we, we say, hey, you know, it, it is a right, but I'm not going to take advantage of it because I'm doing something that way. But neither is it, unbiblical. In fact, sometimes it's the way that God takes care of our lives. How foolish. I mean, honestly, we would look like the guy who, you know, helicopter and boat come by to save, and we're like, no, no, I'm trusting God. You know, I don't need, you know, natural, you know, protection if I'm trusting God, but God in his favor sometimes takes care of our life in just such a way, in just such a great way, which is exactly what's happening for Paul. I mean, his life once more right at the precipice is delivered. Remember, Paul already said, hey, God has rescued me. He does rescue me. He's still going to rescue me. And it's one of the ways that God is doing it in a very natural way. Well, they take all that and so still confused as to why they even have him arrested. It says the next day in verse 30, because the the Roman commander um, wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews. He released him from his bonds commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear. He brought Paul down and set him before them. Then Paul, chapter 23, verse 1, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Pause there, just a good moment. So I think you understand it. We just read the words. The Roman, he's still confused. Doesn't understand what it is, so he calls uh, the Sanhedrin, he calls the, the leadership, this would have been the Jewish leadership uh, that was over the city of Jerusalem, uh, Sadducees, Pharisees, we'll talk more about that in a moment, they're all there, these are the ruling uh, you know, religious leaders of the day, they're brought in before uh, them, and it gives Paul the opportunity to speak, and Paul very boldly and powerfully says, I, I, I have, my conscience is clean, I have tried to live in good conscience before God every day of my life. 
that's a good space even to quickly speak honor to. Uh, it's one of the ways, if we're going to think about God rescuing us, that sometimes he invites us to live such a way, and though we'll not spend much time on that, it's probably the beginning of what Paul's hoping to say. He's hoping to kind of appeal to them, explain uh, why he, he, he's doing the right thing and, and why he's, he, there's no reason that he should be arrested and they should be treating him this way, but it goes badly quickly. It says the high priest in verse 2, Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you said to judge me according to the law. Do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Like, what are you, you're treating me in a way that's altogether unbiblical. Like, you're violating the very law that you're supposed to be upholding. It says, and those who stood by, says, do you revile God's high priest? Uh, you know, in the midst of this, Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written that you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Much we could say in this, but we'll just kind of point it out. So Paul's there, he's, he's watching all this. Um, you know, the, the high priest, which if we know a little bit about history, we would know that this is an incredibly corrupt high priest, um, just unbiblical in, in the way that he did most things. And so even his commending of Paul being beaten is not incredibly shocking, but incredibly wrong. Um, some of you might know it. You think about Jesus. He, had the, he stood in the same space. He stood before the same council, and they also uh, you know, had, 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 had smacked him, and Jesus' response was different. He, he said, if I've done wrong, you know, tell me what I've done. If I haven't done wrong, why? Why, you know, why have you struck me? Why, why would, you, would you do that? Paul's is a little bit more um, responsive. I mean, I don't know, you, you just read that. He's like, you whitewashed wall, you know. I mean, he's pretty, I mean, it's kind of in his face, whole deal. And they just tell him, like, well, what are you doing? This man is the high priest. And Paul's response is, is a good response. It's a response of, well, I'll just say it, it's a response of, of humility uh, by humbling himself. He's like, I didn't know. I, I didn't know that he was the high priest. That's, that's wrong to speak that way. It raises a number of questions, by the way, for Bible students. Like, how would he not know? How would he not know that this guy is the high priest? It could be just the way it's gathered. They're not gathered in the Sanhedrin's space. They've been gathered into the Roman uh, you know, kind of place there. Maybe they weren't, you know, in their robes or whatever that would have identified him. Uh, maybe Paul's never met him. Uh, some would even uh, make a guess that, you know, partly we know, we know about the Apostle Paul is that his eyesight, you know, he'll talk in Galatians about how, you know, just his eyes weren't, you know, up to snuff in the many ways. So maybe he just didn't know. I mean, honestly, he didn't. And, and he's able to say it and say, you know what? Okay, you're right. I didn't know. I didn't know who spoke. I didn't recognize who it is. Uh, I shouldn't have done that. That's a good space, by the way. I mean, had Paul not done this, had he not, in, in some kind of diffusing of the situation at this moment, it probably would have gone badly. It probably would have gone badly from this moment. And I just want to point out, hey, sometimes uh, the way that God would rescue us is by us uh, being, you know, being the one that says, hey, I'm sorry. You know, I, I, I probably said that wrongly. I probably spoke in a way I shouldn't have spoken. Uh, you know, you know, you, you still did the wrong thing, but that doesn't give me, uh, you know, the right to have handled that. And it's an amazing space. Uh, it's a pretty rare space in our world. Maybe you know that, that very rare is it to be that the Bible calls us to be a people who would walk in humility. And Paul does at this moment. He does. And, he, and he's able to, you know, kind of just say that and just says, 
you know, again, in the midst of it, says, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I, I know that I'm not supposed to speak evil of a ruler of the people, verse 5. But Paul's there. And then something happens. It tells us in verse 6, when Paul perceived, and maybe you just kind of want to notice that word perceived. I mean, he's there. He's kind of looking at this. And all of a sudden, it just kind of dawns on him. I mean, he just is looking at the, the, the crowd that's in front of him. He says, one part of Sadducees and the other Pharisees. Uh, and he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say, there is no resurrection. There's no angel, no spirit. The Pharisees confessed both. And there arose such a loud outcry of the scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, we find no evil in this man. But if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let's not fight against God. Now when there arose such a dissension, the commander, fearing lest Paul be put to, pulled to pieces, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. Again, you kind of caught the, the, the scene. If you know your Bibles or know some of the story, you would catch it. I won't spend much more time than what it just said. There's really two ruling parts of, of, of Jerusalem at this point, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees, they, they actually don't believe in anything supernatural. They don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe in angels. They don't believe in anything you can't see. Uh, they are much more uh, kind of natural and just believing in, in, in them as a people. And, and so they just dissuade all of that. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are very religious and they believe. They believe in the resurrection. They believe in angels. They believe in things you can't see. So there's a huge division right now in Jerusalem. I mean, this is one of the, the big arguments uh, that divide Jerusalem. I mean, this is the kind of thing that people, you know, get in fistfights over. This is the kind of thing that, that divides families, divides communities. I mean, it's a massive thing. And so Paul's there, and again, he just tells us he's realizing they're all bearing down on him, and he just perceives, huh? you know, <laughs> there's Pharisees and there's Sadducees here. He's actually, you know, kind of from, a, from the Pharisaical line. I mean, that was what he was raised in, and so he just leans into that. He says, I'm a, I'm a son of a Pharisee. I'm a son of the Pharisees, and I believe in the resurrection. You know, I, I, I believe in that. He, he weighs his words, so it kind of weighs into that argument, and it does exactly what he was hoping it would do. It turns the tables. Uh, he is no longer the issue. Now, they're arguing among themselves. Now they, they turn the argument on themselves and the Pharisees actually come to his defense. And that's not going to last long. I mean, as soon as they kind of wake up from this, they're going to be like, ah, you know, Paul's really the guy we wanted. But it, it, it's a momentary reprieve. But it's part of what rescues Paul in this moment. And there's nothing in that sense that would look upon us. Again, there are Bible students who read this that accuse uh, Paul of not trusting in God, of, you know, hey, you shouldn't have done that. You shouldn't have just, you know, thrown that bone out there to, you know, kind of create the conflict. But I'm just telling you again, sometimes that's how God rescues. And it's, an, again, an interesting thing that it wasn't like he went into this with that. It just was a momentary perception. I would put before you, it's God. It's God delivering. It's God rescuing. And once more, it, it, it stops things in their tracks. It stops things where he's able to turn the tables from, from where it is. God does it in our lives. Sometimes you can be in a situation and all of a sudden, 
You know, know, if I toss this, we could could diffuse this and turn this. I mean, it can be a space, and, and sometimes God can do things that would rescue our lives from problems and things just such way. It, it, sometimes it can be supernatural. It can be uh, things in the midst of it. But this time, it's just wisdom. It's just Paul leaning into what he sees, what he knows, what he's perceiving. And in that moment, it's his rescue. Well, in the midst of all of this, in the midst of all that's taking place, in the midst of, of, of each of these almost moments for, for Paul, God meets him. Verse 11 says, The following night the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for if you have tes- as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. This is one of these good moments that just helps us get a, a, a moment to see it, uh, that God is just encouraging Paul. He must have been discouraged. I mean, it could just be because of everything that just happened. I mean, his life is just missed being killed like three times in the last, you know, 24-hour kind of deal. Maybe he's worried. Maybe he's, did I, have I handled it wrong? Is God still in this? I mean, we don't know. I mean, it's enough to know that fear is gripping him. And, and Jesus just tells him, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You've been faithful. You, you've testified of me, and this is not going to be your end. Uh, you're not going to die here. This is not what's going to be your end because you're going to go to Rome. I, I still have a plan for you to go and stand before, you know, in, before Caesar there in Rome. You have, I have a plan for your life from this moment. And it's a good, wonderful, glorious encouragement uh, of God just meeting Paul in a very real way. And surely it was. I mean, surely you, just, you, you can only imagine. The, be of good cheer, Paul. You have testified for me in Jerusalem. You're also going to bear witness at Rome. So Paul's encouraged. God's going to rescue him. He's, this is not going to be the space he dies. But how do you get out of this? I mean, how, how, where, how is he going to get out of this situation? What, what's going to happen at this moment? Well, that takes us to the next way that God's going to rescue his life. It tells us when it was day, verse 12, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. You just got to pause there and just understand. This is pretty intense. I mean, Paul, I mean, they've tried to kill him several times already. hasn't worked. And so now there's a group of them who say, you know what? We're not going to eat or drink again until he's dead. Like, we're going to get, we're, we're going to do everything we can to see this man uh, dead and, and work this. It's an intense moment. There's about 40 of them who make that. Verse 13, now there were more than 40 who had formed that conspiracy. Serious moment. I mean, again, just, you just got to feel for a moment how serious this is. It says, they came to the chief priests and elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath. We will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow, as though we were going to make further inquiries concern him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Like he said, we're going to, you know, we're going to, you know, ransack them on the way. It's going to be, you know, one of these places where we kill him on the way. This is going to be the end of his whole life in the midst of this. Then catch it. Verse 16. So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Pretty interesting scene. Paul's sister. So we know about her, by the way, in case you're like, I never even knew. Like his sister, that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's all we know. 
It's her son, so Paul's nephew. I mean, Paul's nephew is here. How old he is, we don't know. It would seem from the whole text that he's probably a young boy. I mean, but somehow he overhears. He overhears these 40 people, you know, making this threat against Paul's life. And so he comes and tells Paul. You know, he, he goes and entered the barracks. He tells Paul about it. Verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So they took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me to him and asked me to bring you this young man to you. He has something to say to you. So the commander took him by the hand, went aside, asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Again, you kind of get the feeling this is probably a, a, a young boy. And he said, well, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the court council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them. For more than 40 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by oath that they will neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for a promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one what you've revealed, that you've revealed these things to me. Pretty cool, fun little story. I mean, you just watch this whole thing, but we could watch God be rescuing Paul, and we'd say this time it happens providentially. All of this really falls into that category, but providence has sometimes been defined as God working supernaturally in a natural way. God's going to rescue Paul. How? Well, it just so happens. It just so happens that, you know, maybe this young boy was chasing his ball. I don't know rolled over behind the wall. He just happens to get there, and it's like, whoa, he hears this story. And, you know, the whole thing begins to unfold. What if Paul had that arrogant, super spiritual heart? What if he had the heart of kind of my silly story at the beginning? It's like, well, I don't have to do anything about this. God is just, I just had a dream. I mean, God has told, you know, he's told me he's not done with my life. I'm not going to die here in Jerusalem. I mean, he's going to get me out of here. I don't have to, you know, you know, do anything with this. Instead, he understands, hey, this is partly what God's done. He's about to rescue my life through something very natural, through an overhearing of a threat that Paul just says, hey, take him, take him, let him talk to the commander. And this becomes the thing that rescues Paul from this moment. It's an incredible space. It's an incredible space where once more we're watching Paul's life heading towards a moment where it could be done. I mean, there's 40 men who said, we're going to kill him. And God rescues him. He could have done so with an angel. I mean, he could have. Could have sent an angel to deliver him. He could have done so in, in some other supernatural way. God has done that in the past. Instead, God is rescuing him in such a very natural fashion. Well, they do. So the citizen, now it changes. It tells us there as the commander hears all of this. Verse 23, uh, it says he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, 200 spearmen uh, to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. I mean, it's going to be this massive thing, which you just got to just in your mind try to picture. I mean, we're going to have 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, you know, spearmen, 200. I mean, now we have this entire army you know, surrounding the Apostle Paul to, to rescue him from this moment. He says, I want you to provide mounts to set Paul on, verse 24, and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And so we watch this. We watch this rescue that happens. Well, it is, again, through law. It is through the space of authority. But it's this fun space to watch. 
Let's go back to it and keep reading. So they make this declaration. He writes a letter, verse 25, in the following manner. Claudius Lysias, that's him, that's the commander. To the most excellent Felix, the Roman commander there in Caesarea, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with troops, I rescued him, having learned he was a Roman. Okay, pause. That's not actually true. Uh, that's that, that he, he made himself look really good at this moment as if, you know, he came to Paul's defense because he found out Paul was a Roman. It's not actually what happened. I mean, he actually, you know, rescued him and then, you know, committed him to be, you know, interrogated till he finds out a Roman, but he changes the story. You kind of get that, but it's kind of fun just to watch it. So he makes himself look good. Uh, and so then in verse 28, it says, and when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before the council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had done nothing charged against him, against him deserving of death or chains. So when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipartus. And the next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and return to the barracks. So again, I just, I kind of have this kind of visual thing. I'm just watching this like 400 soldiers protecting the Apostle Paul. I mean, here he is just riding his little mount, you know, it's like, and yet God has put protection around Paul. God has delivered him from death by this army. I mean, this crazy army. They go, you know, halfway there till, you know, pretty much aware that the 40 guys can't be there. So the 200 spearmen, uh, 200 soldiers, the 200 spearmen, they go on. The 70 horsemen, they just take Paul the rest of the way. Uh, they just take the, Paul the rest of the way to Caesarea. And it says uh, there in verse 33, when they came to Caesarea and they delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. Now when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from, and when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will hear you when your accusers have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Boy, you're watching this whole thing again. If we can get to that one theme that we're kind of trying to hit on tonight is we're wanting to watch how God has done this, that he has rescued Paul, that he has delivered Paul again and again which is exactly what Paul said. I mean, we, we, we think about that verse where Paul would look back on these moments and say, we trust in God who delivered us from so great a death, who does deliver us, and we trust that he will still deliver us. I know, he says, I know God's a God who is delivering. I know that God is a God who's rescuing, and you're invited to see it. You're invited to see that can, God can do that in some natural ways, and that's good for us to see. It's good for us to be able to look with those lens of faith both in this and into our lives and see God sometimes works in really natural ways, uh, in, in supernaturally natural ways to take care of us, but let's not totally miss part of the story. He's rescued. Paul is delivered from death, but he's arrested. I mean, he's arrested. You get this whole thing. He's not kept from prison. In fact, it ends our passage saying that they kept him in Herod's Praetorium. History uh, would tell us that Paul is going to enjoy another space of freedom, uh, that after his visit in Rome, uh, that he's going to have an extended space, and that may very well be true. But biblically, the story of Scripture, he's never going to be free again. 
this is it. He, he's arrested here, and he is going to be under arrest to the end of the book of Acts, to the end of this story, and as far as we get to see it, that's the, the, the way it lays it out. That, that he is, this is where he's going to spend those days. God's going to work in it. God's going to work through it. God's going to be in the midst of it. But it helps me to kind of put it that way because it's just the other side of the story. I mean, he is delivered, but he is not. Uh, he is rescued from death, but he's not rescued from arrest or being imprisoned. He's going to spend the next couple years here in Caesarea. He's going to spend the next couple years, you know, in this, this prison. He's going to be, you know, going through all that. And so he's delivered, but not. I think I'm trying to say it this way, that I wonder if that doesn't find you where you are. We live in this world. Uh, we live in this world, and until Jesus comes back, there are things and there are troubles and there are trials that are going to be part of our life. Jesus promised us that. He said, in this world, you're going to have trouble. I mean, that is absolutely a part of our life. I wonder sometimes if we see, if I can say it that way, both sides of it. You know, maybe it is that proverbial, you know, whether you see the cup half empty or half, uh, you know, full kind of deal. But sometimes I just wonder if we don't see what God would have us to see. Maybe, you know, you're going through something right now and it's like, but I'm still in prison. Like, you know, I mean, you know, you're delighting that my life has been rescued, but I'm still, I mean, you don't understand. I still have this and this and this and this. And that is all you see. And I would tell you to your own folly, that's what you would see. If all you can see is some things that God is letting stay in your life, you're missing what he has rescued you from. Yeah, you're missing is like, well, you know, he has done some really great things. He, he's done this and this and this, and wow, my life, you know, and I can see that. I can see that my God is a delivering God. He is a rescuing God, even though in this world we're gonna have this. You know, even though in this space, that's still a part of our lives. I'm just telling you, they're both here a part of the story. Uh, both here are part of this chapter, both the, the place that Paul is still in prison and, and still uh, being unlawfully uh, ra- arrested. This isn't fair. This isn't just. Um, this, is, this is wrong what's happening to him. And yet God has been working and, and Jesus has met him and encouraged him in a space that lets him know that God is rescuing him. And Paul was able to see it. He's able to say, I, I know my God is doing that. I, I know he's in the business of this. In fact, he would write it in, in Philippians this way. He says, I want you to know, brethren, that the things which have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and all the rest that my chains are in Christ. He writes this a couple years from this point in time. He says, I just want you to know all that's happened here, you know, it's actually worked out good. I mean, God is working for the good of the gospel. I've had opportunity to share the gospel. I mean, palace prison, you know, Roman guards in the midst of this, palace guards, the rest, they know this, that my chains are, because this is what God has for me. I mean, like, this is, my chains aren't Roman chains. My chains are really, this is what God has allowed my life to go into. And I want you to know, he says, I want you to know this is really working good. God's gonna work out for the gospel. He goes on to say, I know that it's going to turn out for my deliverance. I know I'm gonna be delivered. I know this isn't the end of my story. It's going to turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing shall I be ashamed. 
but now with all boldness as always, so now also in Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or death. He says, I don't know how I'm going to be delivered. I don't know how I'm going to be delivered. Either he's going to rescue me or I'm going to die and I'm going to be delivered, you know, because then I'm going to be delivered either way. I, I, I know this isn't where it ends for me. I know as I look at my story, he says, as I look at what's happening, I have a confidence in Christ. I have a joy in what he's doing. I know that I have this earnest expectation that so in Christ, it's going to work well. And, and I know that the deliverance that God is working in my life is a real deliverance. God is going to rescue me. He's, he's going to do this in my life. He's going to be the God that does that. And that's the incredible hope that meets him right where he is. This is an incredible hope that in the midst of what he's facing, he can see it uh, through a lens that sees it in God's big rescue plan. I think about it this way in Galatians. Uh, Paul would begin the book of Galatians this way, and he'd say, grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver. And obviously, I'm just kind of focusing on that word deliver tonight. That he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. He says, I'm so glad. I just want to tell you, grace, peace to you from, from God our Father. He, we, we have a Savior we have a Savior, we have Christ, and he gave himself for us to be our deliverer, to rescue us, to rescue us from where we are, uh, to rescue us from this present age, from this evil age in which we live, but to rescue us from our sins, to rescue us from, from everything that's there. It's what Paul, what gave Paul the confidence because he knew that that big part of the story was the main part of the story. That that big hope of what he is and, 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 and that God was doing his life is what gave him the hope that he so desperately needed. It's the way that carried him into that moment. And I'm just wondering. I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm kind of speaking in, in, in large concepts, I suppose, in ways. I'm just wondering if that's how you see it. Our God is a deliverer. Our God is a deliverer. He is a God who rescues us. He is a God who has, is, and will deliver us. You're supposed to be one that would believe that. You're supposed to be one that if you're here this evening and you're a follower of Jesus, that you would recognize this isn't just Paul's story. This isn't just a story of watching how Paul was rescued from a, a bunch of things. It's the way that God works in your life to rescue and deliver and yet the far greater deliverance that undergirds all of this is what God did in sending his son. That God sent his son, that Jesus came uh, to, to deliver us from our sin, to deliver us from this world. And that seed, that, that hope that is found there is our great hope. It, it is the hope that we have in this moment. It's the hope that kind of gives us the space of being able to say with Paul, you know, maybe I live, maybe I die. You know, if I die, I get to go with Jesus because my sins are done. If he gives me a space to live, he'd say in Philippians, and I know that it will be a good space. He'll continue working this because I live is one who has been, is being, and will be delivered by my Savior. I don't know where that lands for you this evening. I want to take just a moment and say, if you're here, if you're joining us in this room, if you're joining us in the overflow, if you're joining us online and you don't have Jesus, then we're offering you this. I mean, this is what Jesus came for. This is what he says. God gave us his son 
uh, so that he would die on the cross and he would be our deliverer. He would rescue us from our sin. He would rescue us uh, from this world that is a mess, this world that is a present evil world. Jesus is our Savior. Deliverer, same word, different, different way of saying it. He's one that saves us. And if you don't know that this evening, if that's not where you are, then today we're inviting you to know Jesus. We're inviting you into a relationship with Jesus. We're inviting you to find him to be the Savior, to be the one that is your rescuer, and pleading even now that you would surrender. I recognize I'm talking to many, most, if not all, of us who are saved. Jesus is your deliverer. And maybe I'm trying to say the same thing in another way. I just wonder if you see it. I just wonder if you look on it and you feel like, well, I don't know. I mean, I've never had an angel, you know, rescue me from prison. I've never, you know, been supernaturally translated out of some situation. You know, I get out of my situations kind of in a very, it just kind of happened. You know, it just happened. Somebody overheard something, something happened in my life. You know, it, it doesn't really feel, but it is. God is moving in your life. He is a God who saves us. But far deeper than that, he, he's dealt with the real thing. If you're his here tonight, he has delivered you from death. He has delivered you from sin. He has delivered you from all that that is so that that would be the lens that you'd see everything. You would be able to say with Paul, he's my deliverer. Whether he delivers me through death or through life, it doesn't really matter. I'm one who has it. I am one who is under that. I just want to invite you to see it. I want you to invite you to see that if you're a follower of Jesus, he's your deliverer, and you have, you are, and you will be delivered because of who he is, because of what he's done, because of where that is. And so it's a great space for us to step towards that and just long for it. So tell you what, you can close your Bibles, notebooks, whatever it is you have open, and we're going to take a space to take communion. It's the last Wednesday night of the month. Uh, uh, literally, like today's the last day of the month. I'm sure you knew that. Crazy already. On the last Wednesday night of the month, we seek to give you an opportunity to take communion, uh, a, a space where we get to celebrate this together. And so we just want to invite you to celebrate with us. We want to invite you into a space uh, that you would do that. I would once more again say, this is, this is for us. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is yours. Uh, if you know Jesus, we're going to invite you to take part in communion tonight. It's a space where we get to celebrate him if, if we know him. And we just, this is ours to celebrate. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is not yours yet. Can be. Maybe even in this moment, you want to surrender your life to him. We would invite you to do that. Uh, if not, then just, hey, we're glad you're here. But this isn't for you. Don't partake with us. Here's how we're going to do this. So Wednesday nights, we do it just a tiny bit different. I'm going to pray in a couple moments, asking God to bring us into it. Then the, uh, just we're going to come, we're going to place the communion elements up here in front of the stage. And then we're just going to worship for a couple songs. And we're just going to invite you to come and take communion whenever you're ready. Uh, anytime in these last two songs, you're just going to be able to invited to come up. You, the Two cups stacked together, take both of them, the bread's in the bottom, juice on the top. And you can take communion up here at the stage. Uh, you can take it back to your chair. You can stand. You can kneel. It really is a moment that is meant to be your moment. And I'm hoping that 
for you who know Jesus, it would be your moment to hold that cup in your hand and say, Jesus, you're my deliverer. You're, you're the one who has delivered me. You're the one who is this. And if I have lost that image, this is how you see it. And then allow it to permeate your life. That, you know, if he's given us his son, he gives us everything. And, and he is a God who's working into that space. Uh, so again, it's just really meant to be that, that space. We take it together. Communion is always meant to be taken uh, in, in a corporate environment. So it is still that. It is this space that you're taking it with God's people. And you're saying, I'm a part of this. I'm a part of this family, a part of who they are. And yet it is a space uh, of being able to enjoy that and celebrate him personally. So let's just pray, ask him that he bring us into that. Um, one last piece of information. So if you take the two cups, you take them back to your chair, uh, take communion whenever you're ready. Uh, you just, just you and the Lord sometime in the midst of those songs when you're done. In the front, and your chair's right in front of you. There's a little square, little piece where the wires come together. That's for communion cups. You can put them there. Um, because we'd rather you put them there than on the chair and they fall over or sit there and play with them or break them or whatever happens. And just put them there. And we'll pick them up later, uh, but just give you a space just that you can continue worshiping with us. So let's ask them to draw us into that. Jesus, you are the great deliverer. Tonight, we get a chance to be reminded that you came, lived your life, died, paid the price for our sin on the cross so that now if we're yours we are delivered we are delivered from our sin we are delivered from that which would have been our undoing God if you never rescued us any other way if you never came through and met us providing for us financially or our health or our situations, if you never did that, but we have this, then we have all that we need because death will not be the end for us. Heaven will be our hope. Thank you for that. And yet, Lord, I, I know because you love us, for those of us who are yours in Christ, you do so much more than that. The greatest need has been met in, in just dying for our sin. And yet you tell us there in Romans that if you've given us your son, don't you freely give us all things? Of course you're working. Of course you're working in other ways. You continue that work of, of rescuing our lives, sometimes very visible, supernatural ways. And I'd ask for that. God, where you want to rescue angelically, supernaturally, yes, please. And not anything is too hard for you. Where you want to rescue in very natural circumstantial ways? Yes, please. Work in our lives your deliverance from everything that would be our undoing. Bring us into that tonight. To that end, wash us. You would be honored, glorified. When they